Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. Right, so we're going to continue with the Passion series. And uh, this is our, our sort of step-by-step. It's, it's re-stepping the, uh, the scenes of, uh, of Jesus that last week before he went to the cross. And we're, we're going to just sort of examine sort of those, those poignant, those salient scenes, those, those, those things where Jesus is really just mapping out what is about to happen and setting forth the, the agenda for which he is hoping and planning to see mankind redeemed. Yeah. But before I get to that, a couple of weeks ago I preached and uh, sort of uh, independently of this whole series altogether, I, I brought up the topic of... Uh, the Passion of the Christ film. And uh, I'll be honest with you, after I, I did that, I had a thought that was kind of going through my mind. And I, I feel like it's a thought that I, I just can't get rid of. And I don't think I'm going to be able to get rid of it unless I share it with you guys. But there's a part of me that doesn't want to share it with you guys because you all just seem, you all seem really righteous. I mean, <laughs> now the lights of, you know, sort of, I can't see the people on the back row. You might not be quite so righteous, but uh, where the lights are, I, they all just seem like righteous people. And I feel as if, like, you won't understand. But for the benefit of some of the people on the back row, you might understand. But so what I was thinking, what occurred to me about the Passion of the Christ was... It's not very good. I, I can't say it. It's not. It's not re- How do I feel? I, it's not a great date movie, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't shoot me down. It's not. It's not a brilliant. Like think. February fourteenth rolls around. That's Valentine's Day for all you guys who forgot. There's definitely someone in there going. Oh, that's why she was annoyed at me. <laughs> I just thought it was her time. No, forget about that. <laughs> so it's February 14th. And you've put a sedative in the kids' meals. <laughs> carry them to bed at like 5.30. And you warm up the meal that you bought from Marks and Spencer's and pretend to your wife that you do know what salmon on crout is. <laughs> clean up the dishes and you say come on let's, let's cozy up on the sofa and watch a movie <laughs> and you do that thing that very magnanimous that very selfless thing that really guys can only do when they have an ulterior motive and you uh, and you say sweetheart what would you like to watch tonight <coughs> she says well what about the greatest love movie ever made? And you think, Frozen. Amen. <laughs> I know a church where they did like a whole series on Frozen. <laughs> they were sisters, they loved each other. And you go, and she goes, no, 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 the passion of the Christ. And you say, you're thinking to yourself, that's kind of a mood killer, right? And you go, really? And she says, well, I just think spending two hours just reliving that hardship, that torture, 
Is this really going to help me reflect on the last ten years together? <laughs> it's cold, right? That's real cold. <laughs> We're on this passion series. I'm going to go to the core verse. We've got a core verse that just helps us sort of pull all the strands of these messages together, something we can refer to, something that contextualizes all of these sort of individual scenes. We've been reading from uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. So I shall read that for you now. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who is the joy that was set forth before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I'm just going to take a little bit out of that. There's there's a bit there that I think is very profound. Uh, It says... The sin which so easily ensnares us. So easily ensnares us. Sin is like, it's always just just crouching, waiting to sort of pounce, to reach out. I I remember I went uh, rambling. I think that's the best way I could put it. I don't think you could quite call it hill walking, but rambling this one time. And I I found myself in this copse, just this very sort of wooded area, lots of uh, bushes, and we were kind of making our way through the undergrowth. And we came upon like this little patch where there was just all of these little snares for rabbits, for catching rabbits, these little sort of metal nooses, or wire nooses. And I'm pretty sure, I, I, I seem to remember at the time thinking that using wire nooses is actually illegal. So we we tore them all up out of the ground. Free love for the rabbits. <laughs> Go forth and multiply. <laughs> and we, but like you could just, they were, they were so subtle. Like they were just everywhere. And you just knew it's like a rabbit might be pottering around, scrambling around in the undergrowth and just get caught, whether it be an arm or a head or a neck or something, and just get so easily ensnared. So easily ensnared. And when we, when we scramble through the thickets of our own life, Sin just sort of, it clings to us. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever had like a, a leech or a, or a tick get hold of you and it just draws upon your, your blood, draws upon your life. And, and sin is just so like that. It, you walk through a thicket, you walk through, uh, you know, just something just a bit close. And, and before you know it, there's that, that, that resolve within your life is being poisoned. That, that zeal that is upon your life, that spark that sits upon your life is just faded because sin has that effect of just diminishing, just drawing upon our life. And it, is, it ensnares us so, so easily. It's, it's so easy to get caught. It's so easy that you don't even need to do the sin to fall into the sin. I don't know if you've... Uh, like I know that you all have because we all have. It's like we all particularly when we're feeling rather righteous with ourselves. If, we, if we've done something quite noble and magnanimous, and we'll, we'll permit ourselves to just give ourselves over to those thoughts towards that person. We all know who, don't be coy with me, we all know who that 
person is. We all have a that person. A that person who humiliated us, who upset us, who disappointed us, who uh, intimidated us, who abused us. We all have a that person. And we've all forgiven that person a hundred times. But it just takes that pervasive, just reaching out of sin just to ensnare us. And you know, if you're anything like me, which I hope that you're not, but (laughs) you know that you kind of, you you don't even snap yourself out of it until the level of the eye for an eye has has just become so intense that you're kind of, your conscience just pulls you back as if, come on, James, come on, the blender was too far. (laughs) (laughs) It's too far. And, and, And before you know it, You've allowed sin in. The Bible cautions us that even imagining sin is no different because the intention remains. It says in, actually I'm going to paraphrase Mark 7 a little bit. It says, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts. These come from within and defile a man. They defile, just, just even thinking those thoughts. They, they ins- and how, how pervasive is that? How easily ensnared are we by just the thoughts that come into our mind that, 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 that we just don't take captive of immediately? We don't, we don't necessarily have the presence of mind to capture them at their inception. A fleeting thought left unchecked turns to meditation, which inspires pursuit, which becomes an action, which yields a fruit. It's all so easy because sin just so easily ensnares us. But the great thing about that verse, I'm not going to leave you with that. That would be a rubbish message. (laughs) The great, the first part of that, that passage says, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight. To me, that's a verse of such confidence. Such tremendous confidence because, look, as I said, sin is so subtle in how it entangles us. And its effects are cumulative and they're escalating. They, they build upon build. That little white lie turns into a tapestry of lies. It escalates and it's cumulative. Yet we are encouraged to lay aside our burdens just lay them aside. Not, it doesn't even say like, tear them from your flesh. Purge them from your soul. It's just simply lay them aside. As if it's no more inconvenient than unwanted luggage or shopping bags. Just lay them aside. But there's a... There's an obvious disconnect with this. There's something that obviously sort of disconnects in our minds because we understand the words that are written and yet so many of us have experienced something different experience tells us that sin is pervasive and it infects us and it's it's no more easy to lay aside than it is to lay aside a cold you know i i when i have a cold i get a hanky i'm blowing that hanky <laughs> I'll wrap it up in a ball and I'll lay it aside as I walk through my house. (laughs) Don't want the children to complain they don't have any toys. (laughs) (laughs) 
cast it aside. But the cold still remains. I've just cast aside whatever was manifest from that disease. (laughs) Chuck the hanky, but the cold remains. So we must accept then that, that in order for us to be able to lay aside our turmoil, it involves something that is unconventional, something that is defies our human logic and reason uh, that you wouldn't arrive at by natural conclusion. Something that just, it turns your human thinking upside down. You know, it inhabits a space beyond the reach of our temporal minds. It is not natural. It is not something that given a huge amount of time, you would just arrive at because it sits outside of the natural realm. But what we are channeled towards Although it sits beyond that, it's not, it's not confusing, and it's not complicated, it's not elaborate, it's not incomprehensible. It's just that its appreciation is not, it's not restricted by a threshold, of like an intellectual threshold. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about faith. Yeah. It's, not, it's not how smart you are as to how much you'll understand it, how much you'll appreciate it. It's about the level of your faith and how that connects. That is the threshold. It's much like, I don't know if any of you guys have been rock climbing. And part of rock climbing is abseiling. And rock climbing is a little bit more natural in itself. You, you climb up and your head is at the top of your body, for most of us. And so you can see where you're going. You can put your hand up. And your, your head is sort of not far away from it. And your hand can go to where it wants to go. And you can move yourself up and your feet can go where your hands used to go. It's, it's much more natural to climb up a rock face. But climbing down it, it's like your head's in the wrong place. You'd really need to see out from your behind in order to be able to... Because you have to see down past your body. The perspective is all skewed. It's, it's really difficult to climb down. It's really dangerous to climb down. Now, it's obviously dangerous to... Keep on climbing, but it's much harder to, to come down the same thing that you came up. That's why you abseil. You, you put, your, put your life in the hands of a rope, which is, it sort of defies logic in a sense. There's, there's sort of like an instinct in yourself, like you want to remain in control of the descent. And if you've ever been abseiling, you know that there's that moment where you just have to trust the rope. You just have to trust it because if you don't trust it, you'll just keep on climbing. You'll, just, you'll try to go down, but you'll find yourself going up and you won't be able to descend the perilous place. You won't be able to get down from where you are. Which brings us to the question of the rope. What is the rope in question? What is it that our faith clings to? Well, this brings us to our next scene in the Passion. I'm going to read to you from John 13, uh, and it's from one, uh, verse 1 to 17, and it's sort of a, a scene, it's a scene uh, with Jesus and his disciples, and just try and sort of imagine this scene as I, as I speak it to you, just try and see it as it kind of plays out a little bit. So John 13, 1 to 17. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own uh, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil 
having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's brother, to betray him. It's interesting there, because it wasn't that Judas had actually betrayed him at this point. It had just been, the thought had just been put there. It's a bit like what we were talking about earlier. It's like he just entertained the thought long enough that the thought became an action that yielded a fruit. The problem was the fruit that he thought he was uh, was going to yield was wealth, his 30 pieces. But much like most of our sin in life, what we think we're getting isn't what we get. And what he actually yielded was total damnation. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and guarded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Simon said to him, Lord, you are, uh, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will after this. Jesus said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, uh, and you say, well, for so I am. If I am then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's a lot to sort of unpack in that verse. The first thing is, Jesus went to wash his disciples' feet and he, he adopted the position of a servant. He, he took off his robe. You have to remember, this is a robe that when he was sort of being, uh, when the guards, uh, the Roman guards took it from him, they actually rolled dice for it. It was so valuable. It was, it was, a, it was like a mantle, really. It represented his leadership and it represented him as a teacher. It was... It was it was what his mantle for the role that he had been living. And he took that off and he guarded himself with a towel, much like a servant. Now, I think if I was going to have to wash any of your guys' feet, I would guard myself as well. And I would <laughs> grit my teeth, put a peg on my nose and breathe through the gaps in my teeth. <laughs> but you have to understand that this, and this is, Really what we have to understand from the very beginning of this is this whole sort of episode of feet washing is a metaphor for what is to come. For what is to come. But the disciples don't understand it. They don't understand it because they're just too close to the events. It's like they're right there in them. They're living it in real time and have no perspective as to what's going to come. And and it's just so close and it's just so raw that, that they can't, they don't get the metaphor. They can't possibly get the metaphor. 
But here's the amazing thing, because there is a tremendous parallel as to what he is doing here and what he does later. See, he took off his robe and adopted the position of a servant, where later on he would have his robes taken from him and he would be treated like a criminal. For the first one, to wash the feet of his disciples, and in the second instance, to cleanse the souls of all mankind. Now, what he was going to do is wash their feet. Now, their feet were dirty. Their feet would have been absolutely filthy. It was a dusty climate. It would have been hot. There was no Nikeir Max. There was no breathable cotton. Their feet would have been stinky. They would have been dirty. They just spent the afternoon walking into Jerusalem. One of them had to follow behind the donkey. Any of you guys want to swap with me? <laughs> they would have been dirty. And, and the position, the role that Jesus adopted would have horrified the disciples. Would have horrified them because this was their Lord, this was their teacher, and he was going to wash their feet. Could you imagine someone you admire doing something so indignified for you? How uncomfortable that would make you feel. I remember a few years ago, uh, I went up to uh, uh, Pastor Kevin and Shell's house with a whole bunch of the young adults. And we probably, I don't know what it would have been, a barbecue or something like that. But it got dark and somebody had the idea, let's play manhunt. Now when you're 30 years old, you're the perfect age to play manhunt. (laughs) Living your whole life, you're ready for this. (laughs) I remember we were given the warning, said, look... Go anywhere. It's a bit like the Garden of Eden. You can go anywhere you want in the, in the garden. But stay away from the bottom because that's where the cesspit is. That's where all the waste goes from the house. But I was... My military training had taken over by that point. <laughs> hours and hours racked up on Call of Duty and Halo. So I was, I was in the zone. I was already going ghost recon. So I wasn't listening. So we get out there, I must have been on the catching team, and I hear this voice, I'm like, ah, I'm going to have them. So I ran across, but what I didn't realize was in between me and the voice was the cesspit. <laughs> there I was, that familiar squelching sound. <laughs> familiar, yeah. My feet covered in the rich brand of Upton excrement. <laughs> So I walk up to the house, head low. Something really beautiful happened. Out from the house, with a basin of warm water, strode Pastor Kevin. He sat me down on a chair and he took off of my shoes and my, my soiled socks, threw them in the incinerator, put my feet into the basin and began to wash them. And I thought to myself, Kevin, why are, why are your hands so soft? <laughs> what kind of moisturizer do you use? <laughs> oh, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure actually what happened was he came out of the house and he said, 
Take one step in there, and I will cut your legs off below the knee cut. <laughs> he might not have even said it, but it was in his eyes. <laughs> but the disciples were horrified. Just horrified at the idea that Jesus would be washing their dirty, dirty feet. And the, the disciple spokesman, the one with no filter between his brain and his mouth, Peter, spoke up. Because he just couldn't abide this. A lot of us internalize this stuff and pretend it isn't happening. He doesn't do that. He just says it how it is. He says, you shall never wash my feet. Now in Peter's response, there was actually, it, it comes across as sort of like, he's like, no, 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 you're too good, you're too God. Too God. But actually there's a, there's a pride and there's a self-will that's at the heart of all sin in what he was saying. He was approaching this scene with a, with a worldly and yet at the same time totally religious mindset. He was telling Jesus what he could and he couldn't do for him. And it was all wrapped up in this false humility, which revolved around what he was comfortable with. I had very little to do with bestowing honor upon Jesus. It was wrapped up like that, like a lot of religion is. Just wrapped up in this, this false humility. But it's really about skewing it to what we feel comfortable with. And you see, we have to re- realize that, that, that Peter very much reflects us. We, we are so ashamed of the sin that clings to us. The idea of exposing that guilt to him is just it's terrifying. Like how sensitive we are when we're vulnerable. Like you can imagine right now, particularly you people who are very home proud. If like while you're sitting here, Kevin and Cheryl weren't really in Dundee, but they were in your houses and they were going through them and looking under the sofa and going, they don't even clean there. You'd be appalled. You'd be appalled if you found that out because you would feel totally vulnerable. You'd feel like the, the, the dirt of your life would just be totally exposed and... I mean, Aaron wouldn't care. I've been at his house. Once. (laughs) Jesus challenged Peter. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And we all kind of, at some point, face that dilemma. You know, if we, by refusing Jesus' offer to wash our wounds, we reject him entirely. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like if he offered you a breath mint, but you were too proud to take it. (laughs) You're too proud to take it because you didn't want to admit that there was anything wrong with your breath. He wouldn't be able to converse with you because your breath stinks. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to because you have re- we cannot ch- pick and choose the parts of his offer that we take. Yeah, his sacrifice is not at our convenience. Yeah. It's not on our terms. It is his sacrifice that pays for our sin. And so Peter, and I heard some of you laughing when I read it, goes in like full backtrack mode and approaches it from like the complete opposite he's just literally said I will never let you wash my feet and his next words are Lord not my feet only 
but also my hands and my head. <laughs> you have to understand about Peter. Peter is like his driving desire. The thing that drove him was he just wanted to have a relationship with Jesus. He just, he adored that relationship. He just, to be able to have a relationship with Jesus, he would say or do anything. The problem with that was that the reason he would say or do anything, rather than just simply receive what Jesus was giving him, because he didn't get any of it. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus on merit of his shining personality or anything like that. So there was an insecurity on the inside, a pride on the inside. And so he strived. He strived and his efforts were misguided. And again, even in saying the complete opposite of what he'd said before, there was still this strong element of self-will. It's like he wasn't simply receiving with humility what Jesus was saying and doing for him. But he was still trying to wrestle control of the situation and he was setting different parameters than Jesus was. Jesus was like, I'm going to wash your feet. So, oh, why don't you wash my feet, hands and head? Why don't you do a lot more? He's like, this is what I'm doing for you. Receive it with humility. Don't try and control the situation. Don't try and make it about a set of parameters that you've defined. And the reason for this was he just hadn't realized, he hadn't discovered the depths of his own brokenness. And so insecurity undermined his desire to surrender. He so desperately wanted to surrender. He so desperately wanted to have a relationship with God. And yet the pride on the inside, the pride that said, he won't accept me if he knows what I'm really like, undermined. So he was always trying to prove something. Always trying to strive. Always trying to impress. And Jesus grounds him one more time. He says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, this is a really clever metaphor, really clever for the time and the day. If you imagine in that time, much like now, if if you're being invited to a special meal, before you go there, you want to have a wash. You want to make yourself clean. You want to make yourself presentable. But as soon as you stepped outside... Your feet would get dirty again because you're just wearing sandals and the streets are dusty and it's hot. And so by the time you arrive at where you're going, your feet are just as dirty as if you might as well not have washed them in the first place. Your feet become dirty despite any effort you made to cleanse them. And you know what? When we walk through life, it's pretty much the same as walking through a dusty street. You can try and wash yourself as much as you like and cleanse your soul from all the sin that blemishes it. But as soon as you step back into your life, you're, you're soon soiled, you're soon sullied by the dysfunction and contamination of life, of sin that just so easily ensnares. You can't stay clean by your own efforts. And the more that you try the more you become disheartened by trying to do this and failing. But Jesus was saying to Peter, and by implication just every single one of us, that once you are washed by his sacrifice that was given to pay the ransom for our sin, it is a once 
and for all time deal. It's, it's a one and done. It's a, now that you are washed, you stay washed. And the ramifications of this are so far reaching, particularly at this moment in time. Because what he was doing was challenging the entire framework and understanding of forgiveness at this time. See, instead, up until this point, up until Jesus gave his life, instead of returning to the altar to make amends for the sin through atonement, what Jesus was saying, he was transforming the repetition of this ritual into one of nurturing a relationship. He was, whereas up till now, you had to atone for your sin, you had to go to the altar, and you had to do this time and time and time again, because you only got a measure of forgiveness. He was saying, that ritual is done. That is finished. And now instead of revisiting the altar for atonement, now you revisit the relationship from which you are cleansed in the first place. That is the nurturing of a relationship as opposed to the repetition of a ritual. Here's where the whole thing comes full circle. Right at the beginning of that verse, Jesus is sort of reflecting and he's thinking about how he was handed, God handed him the responsibility for mankind's redemption. He was handed that responsibility and he, and he departed from God and he accepted his role. The role was to come to earth and bring redemption. And he just sort of completed this episode where he washed the disciples' feet and he'd given them this preview of what was to come. And when Jesus died, it would all begin to make sense to them. And when he returned to the Father, they would be the only ones left on earth who would have understood the purpose behind his life, the reason for why he had come, the significance of his sacrifice. So now they carried the responsibility and now they fulfilled the role. It had been passed on. Here's what this means. Under the old covenant, the onus was on the sinner to approach the priest to attain a measure of forgiveness. Jesus flipped the script. And now the onus was on the forgiven to seek out the sinner to wash them in the blood of Jesus' sacrifice to make them clean. What was once a pyramid where the prominent and the righteous sat at the top supported by the sinners and the rejected and the broken that pyramid was turned upside down such that the righteous now adorned the robes of the servant to sacrifice for those who they now supported to bring righteousness into the life of the sinner of the lost 
the one who did not know God. Rather than relying on those who were lost to find God, those who knew God went out into the world to bring back the lost. What, what Jesus did in that, in that little scene, he just he began to reveal the degree of humility that he was going to exhibit upon the cross. And he went to the cross and he would die just the most cruelest death. If you thought that it was humiliating for him to wash your feet, how much more so would it be to imagine him dying in the cruelest manner possible for everything that you had ever done wrong? The humility he was exhibiting, demonstrating, is a humility that he asks of us. Humility to to respond to him, to accept his sacrifice. Be humble enough to know that we are powerless to deal with our dysfunction without him. But also the humility sit around the meal table of our lives with those who are lost those who don't know Jesus and to take off whatever garments of stature or prominence and to adorn ones of servanthood to bring salvation into the world thanks for listening If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.junctionchurch.com. God bless.